Welcome to Making Strides for Animal Chiropractic, where we promote integration and collaboration. Whether you are just starting your practice or you are ready to push the profession forward, we aim to provide you all the tools necessary to form relationships and educate your community. After all, spines of all sizes deserve to be adjusted. Welcome to our podcast and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it's Dr. Katie with Making Strides for Animal Chiropractic. In this podcast, I have an exciting guest. You all may know her as the Traveling Horse Witch. You may also know her as Wild Magic LLC. Regardless, Celeste Lazarus is an amazing animal body worker that has developed the Balance Through Movement Method. It is a technique specifically used to address horses with thoracic sling dysfunction. If you don't know what that is, you're living under a rock, especially if you work on sport horses. You guys, I know you're going to take away a lot from this episode. Please be sure to listen twice and take some notes because she has a lot of knowledge on this topic. I know it's going to help serve you and your patients. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey guys, treating patients is not about doing everything alone. When you're starting a practice, it can be hard getting out there, marketing yourself, talking to other providers about what you do. I get it. I am strongly introverted. I do not like talking to other people. And the last thing I want to do is try and sell myself. But it is really important when I'm working on patients that I remember I am working together as a team. So there are other parts to the animal care team and I need to do my part to reach out and talk with them and learn from them about what is important that they're doing that impacts what I'm doing and vice versa. So I really love the Evidence-Based Chiropractor, a program developed by Dr. Jeffrey Langmade because it helps bridge the gap between medical doctors and chiropractors so that way we can figure out what is best for our patients. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about his program, I recommend you looking him up on the Evidence-Based Chiropractor Hey guys, this is Dr. Katie with Making Strides for Animal Chiropractic. I have a very exciting guest today. This is Celeste, and she is the owner of the Balance Through Movement Method. I'm very, very excited to have her here today. She helps horses with complaints that we didn't even know that they had. And in um, the chiropractic world that we live in, myofascial pain syndromes, they're real and they do exist for horses as well. And I invited Celeste onto the podcast today because she knows how to um, address these pain syndromes in a different way. um, So that way these horses can reach their best potential. I wanted her to talk a little bit more today about herself and um, a little bit more about how she got started with the balance through movement method and what led her along this unique path. So Celeste, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Celeste Lazarus and yeah, it's just really awesome to be here. I, so I, I never know how to like answer that question because it's such a loaded question of kind of how I got started with it, but I was, um, you know, a typical horse, crazy girl, grip writing, um, many, many, many different styles kind of landed at the end of which my foundation was like bridal horse style, classical dressage. I'm an adrenaline junkie by nature. So I really got into jumpers, um, a little bit of barrel racing, kind of unit chasing cows, mountain shooting, you name it. Um, but I, I really landed a lot with the jumpers. And so I was a competitive rider and trainer for years, um, doing just all kinds of things, really specializing in, in behavior, So like I was always very interested in like um, chronic behavior cases and I I would get like the really aggressive horses. They'd call me out for that. And um, along the way, I was introduced to a massage therapist that came through the barn and she was like, do you want me to work on your horses? And I'm like, I don't even get massage therapy. Like this isn't real, blah, 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 you know. 
typical, typical <laughs> night, night thing. And she knew that I specialized in behavior cases. So she was like, bring out your toughest case. I'll work on them for free. No big deal. You know, you just stay with it. And I was like, okay, whatever. And like, there was licking and chewing and I'm like, that's me, you know? Okay. I'm glad they got to have a spa day. And the next day when I, when I rode the majority of the issues that the horse came in with were gone. And I was like, huh, it's probably a fluke. So I took me a couple of days riding the horse and I was like, okay, well, maybe it's not a fluke. Well, we'll see. And so when she came back through, I gave her a couple other horses and same things were happening, just massive decrease in the behavior. And that's like a pretty decent ego hit for somebody who was very, um, I've always been very horse first minded. Um, really mindful horsemanship was really like, like what I would say all the time. And, and so for me to realize that I was training these horses through behavior that was actually pain was really shitty. It was a really hard thing for me to sit with. Um, so I was like, well, I'll do like the next best thing. I'm going to put new policies in place. Everybody was like implemented immediately. Like none of the horses got worked unless they were cleared by the body worker. The first thing that happened when the horse came in, the body work saw them. Um, And then, you know, I just, I was constantly checking in and I felt pretty good about like my contribution to the equines (laughs) world at that point. And then as that continued on, you know, she got busier and busier and I, you know, was doing my own thing and she mentored me quite a bit. And so I was like, I just want to be able to work on my own horses. So I learned how to palpate. I learned how to do like, you know, your, your basics. Right. And so what happened there was another, this was like what I would call my ego eradicating moment. Um, was it's a, it's a one thing to, to get your horse worked on and ride them and feel the difference. And it's a completely other thing when you're the one that's releasing the tension and then you ride the horse and then you feel them again and you realize like what you just put back into the horse. And then I had a little bit of a come apart as we call it, or mental breakdown. And it was like, and that kept happening. And I mean, I mean, I'm a good writer, like I'm well balanced, I'm well timed, my tack fit, like, but there were things about how the horses were moving in space that were causing more tension. And I didn't understand what was happening. So I just kind of panicked and had a meltdown and like, shut, like close my whole business. And I was like, I can't, I don't want to train anymore. I don't want to give lessons. I'm not training anymore. I'm not like, I'm not going to ride, put myself in timeout. Um, and I was like, I really need to pursue this body work thing. Like, I'm just going to do body work. And I tried to explore. So then I was, so I went to school for equine massage therapy I went to school for human massage therapy as well because I love competitions and I wanted to work on the horse and rider team I thought that that would be a really good way for me to be like okay riders I'm sure are messing them up some way so I'll go to so I used to go to competitions all the time and I'd work on horse and riders and their soap notes always look the same the riders were generally screwed up in the same place as the horses or you know you're you're a horse and human Cairo too right so it's like it's it's always fascinating to see that um And I felt pretty good about that. But the whole time I was doing it, it was constantly with this, like, I never intended to, to just be a body worker. Like I missed training and I missed writing, but I like, I just didn't feel comfortable doing it again because I was like, I got to figure this out. So a couple of years into this, I'm playing with it. And I, I, I dabbled, I I would read things. I read a ton of books lots of self-study on like physiotherapy, different equine rehabilitation techniques, trying to think of things that I would try them. Um, But the problem that would come up with that is I was really struggling with finding things that were 
that would rehab a part of the horse without um without the expense of something else i don't know if you've experienced that but like there like you would you'll you know like you'll focus on like the thoracic sling for instance but then the hind end of the horse would get really wonky or something else would happen and i'm like there's there's something here that we're not getting and so over time especially after going through the human massage school um I, I started paying attention to nerves and I was like, I wonder if this is what's going on. I wonder if there's nerve impingements that are going on that we're not seeing. Cause we get just all this undiagnosed lameness and I'd watch the vets and I, you know, I had very, very wealthy clients and especially in the hunter jumper community. And it's like, they're scratching their heads. They're dumping thousands of dollars in diagnostics. Nothing is going on. Nothing's coming up. Horses are chiroed massage therapy. And it's like, what's going on? Why are they three-legged or why do they have head shaking syndrome or why does, why, why are they bucking erratically and nobody can find it? So I started translating my human techniques over to the horses, just playing with it. And I started with my own horses and I started seeing these pretty rad results quickly. So instead of spending like 45 minutes really working on a neck and the tissue and getting it soft within like 15 minutes of doing some of this manual nerve release techniques on the neck, it would just melt. And I was like, that's it. Because I mean, and, and again, I know, you know, this is a Cairo, but you'll get in these, these bodies that are like concrete, right? Like they're so hard because when there's a nerve impingement, everything seizes up to protect it. And then when you release it, it just all melts back beautifully. And so I was finding this in the horse's bodies and I was like, this is so rad. So I started calling it nerve release work. And then, and that was fantastic. And I got really well known for that. And it was really fun. But same things were happening. So I would do nerve release work on the horses and then I would go back and see them two weeks later and they would be, they would be back again. And I'm like, what? Okay. So what's causing this? So, cause it's again, like the saddle fits, that's not bad training programs. Like the horses aren't being like seesawed on or like, you know, it's not, it wasn't like a bad situation. And so then I started diving into the development. So like what, what could potentially cause it? And what's really funny to me is that I never actually heard the term thoracic sling. Like I didn't hear about it in body work school. I didn't hear, I, I mean, somebody might've mentioned it, but like, I didn't know that that's what it was until I started doing the stuff. And somebody was like, Oh, you're specialized in the thoracic sling. And I was like, do I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, what I was, what I'm focused on is I, so for me, for, for the nerve impingements, it's like um, the two main causes for the horses are the brachial plexus and the lumbosacral plexus because those are those the bundles that like everything shoots down on so what i was finding is that the body itself wasn't um the the plexus itself was being compromised so in humans it's called thoracic outlet syndrome and it's the same thing for the horses it's just it looks a little bit differently but it's the same the same problem in in both species and and the the results or the the side effects of it is, are the same. So, and same for humans. So like as a, as a Cairo for, for brachial plexus impingement, you guys can go through and you can adjust like the first rib in the clavicle, right. And can kind of, there's a lot of other things, but that's like your main, like creating space, right. For a massage therapist, what I would do for my human techniques is it was like, I would go through and I would release the psoas, the diaphragm, and then the scalenes, and then kind of up in their jaw. And so you're getting like a full release and through here. And then there's always like rotator cuff stuff involved in that. But the main goal was to create space. And where chiropractic would come in really importantly was making sure that there was actually space between the first rib and the clavicle, right? And so I could do quite a bit. Chiro was really helpful. And then if they wouldn't stick from that, 
then I knew that it was a, it was a developmental or it was a postural issue in the human clients. Right. So that's when we started giving them exercises and how to, how to strengthen whatever was going on within the body that was, that was keeping it happening because we can only do so much if they're going and they're sitting at their desks and they're, (laughs) they're doing things that are, you know, or like hairdressers is a big one. Right. So they're like up here. And so they're constantly tight. And I'm like, okay, so you can do this for a job, but you have to do the opposite action and training so that when you go to work, you're not screwing your body up. Right. Yeah. So these are conversations we have with our human clients. And so I was like, well, if nerve impingement's a thing for horses, maybe developmental is too. And I obviously like I was a competitive writer. So like I understood development in, in how I understood development for, for horses, which was, was not at all how I understand development now. Um, but so when I would look at bodies, I remember I came across a cross section that, it it showed the brachial plexus and then it showed like the muscles and the scapula and like and then I and then I took that and I was looking at the horse's bodies and I was like oh my god these are the same muscles that are like not developed on my briar horses like (laughs) even I'm not playing dude like I pulled out my briar horses for my daughter the other day and I was like they don't have an infraspinatus or a supraspinatus this is terrible and um small things it's awful (laughs) it's true yeah and so um anyway funny side notes so I was looking at this and I was like oh my god like all that's why they all have this like they don't have the muscles that serve as a cushion which is the thoracic sling and I add the infraspinatus and the supraspinatus onto that because those muscles act in with a subclavius so like one of the issues that people will have in developing stuff is they don't because there's not a book that's written on it that I can find but there's not anything that really narrows down um and I never I say this in every podcast and every podcast and I'm like please somebody prove me wrong and tell me where I can find this book and if not write it. Somebody needs to write it, but I can't find anything that really genuinely lists like what muscles in an equine are antagonistic, synergistic, right? I own three of them for humans. So we have them for humans, which is why we're so good at developing like that thing. It doesn't exist for horses that I, I, anybody that I know of can find. And so the problem with that is if we don't know what muscles are antagonistic and synergistic, how do we know how to play off of sets? How do we know what muscles to activate and deactivate? Like, how do we know that? Like, so if we don't know that, how are we correctly developing these bodies for sport? Like, it's such a weird, like when you start going down it, you're like, my whole life's like, I don't know anything at all. I could Um, just reel back a little bit because there's a lot of great stuff in there. I'm going to dissect it a little bit. God, so many. (laughs) Anyway, that's how the balance movement method came to be. It was a whole lot of that. It sounds (laughs) like, like, okay. Sounds like you had just a major epiphany to where you said, I want to do the very best by my horses. And you were, you you know, training them, obviously, but then you realized how much, you know, just how much pain can come from the musculoskeletal system, right? And how much all of it behavior, right? So if, if that's something we're neglecting, you can't ever properly get an athlete to where they need to go, their optimal performance, right? And some of these behaviors are horrible and unwritable, and they shouldn't be written through because you have to find the cause. We say this all the time as chiropractors, adjust the cause, find it, fix it, leave it alone, let it heal, right? But if mm-hmm. we're not ever truly 
finding these areas and not addressing them properly, we're not ever going to have a long lasting athlete um, in in our hands, right? So I'm going to reel us back a little bit and say thoracic sling dysfunction. That sounds like a really big buzzword, right? Like, okay, I like, know. what is that? Right. You know, thoracic outlet syndrome, we glossed over this actually in chiropractic school, which is kind of silly. Oh. So many people, yeah, they took it out of the curriculum, which actually we had. That's to wild. That was like the heart of mine. I know, which is interesting because so many people have it. So we had to do a project on it, but that's all we, all we had. We only had like a two week project we had to do on it. When I actually see it a lot in people, we see so many, I was like, that was the meat and potatoes of my human clientele. (laughs) I know we see so many women, for example, and I I know people are listening to this or I'm watching this, but they're at their desk with their shoulders up, right up to their ears and they're breathing with their scalenes. And so their diaphragm, right. And they're like, why am I always stressed? Right. And then we get into flexor uh, dominance, where if you're in a constantly flexed posture um, that actually upregulates your system to where it stimulates your sympathetic nervous system, which makes you more worried, more anxious, more stressed. Right. And mm-hmm. we, we know what that, you know, can perpetuate. And when we think that that translates to our horses, right. Okay. Thoracic outlet syndrome, well, mm-hmm. thoracic sling dysfunction is what it's called in horses. Right. So what does that do to, for people, it may be due to poor posture, like reversal of a neck curve, always looking down at cell phones, carrying your head right. forward. But what about horses? Because when we hear things like that's just how they're built, that's just their confirmation. I want to hear you. They don't have a clavicle that doesn't exist. It's not real. I know, right? So that's the difference, right? So what is thoracic sling dysfunction and why is it different in horses than it is in people? Um, This is actually one of my favorite things to talk about because it always like either mind blows people or annoys them and either response I find amusing. So thoracic sling dysfunction in, in horses, in my opinion, comes from primarily because horses are not meant to be ridden. Um, and when I say that, um, and lots of people say that that gets thrown around, people say it all the time. But like, if you ask people, are like, well, why aren't horses meant to be ridden? They can't really tell you. They're just like, well, cause you're riding on their back and they're meant to pull. And it's like, yeah, but like, there should be like more to that. And what the more to that is, and this is where the antagonistic sets come in in the wild. So <laughs> back when I thought that I knew everything about horses, I did a lot of behavior studies with Mustangs in the wild. So I got to observe a lot of them and how the herd dynamics and things like that. And one of the things that was pronounced, and these are all things like, again, you know, when, when you've been a horseman your entire life in different avenues, you start all these little things ping when you start thinking about stuff. So these are things that I never thought of when I was working with Mustangs, but now I'm like, Oh, that's, that's why that was there. Um, so in the wild, the usually the eldest in the herds, um, primarily the stallions, almost always the stallions specifically, would have very, very, very heavily hypertrophied brachiosphalicus. So their low neck muscle was really big and developed. Um, their sling wasn't super developed, but their and their iliopsoas group or lower lumbar muscle, low back, it was very, very, very tight and developed. So it was always very fascinating to see that. And oftentimes in both of those areas, especially in the neck, they would come in with scars all over on both sides. It's something that we see a lot of. And now in hindsight, now playing with the muscles and knowing what they do, what's interesting is that that, that brachiosphalicus is antagonistic to the thoracic sling musculature. The thoracic sling is required. So it's not up for debate. 
it is required to be developed to have a sound riding horse, longevity, all those things. But that set of muscles runs antagonistic to their brachiocephalicus. And I prove this all day long. This is one of my favorite things that I figured out just by pure trial and error and watching horses and observing horses. And so if that's the case, the, those muscles are the protector muscles. So a horse is biologically designed to seize up that muscle and to go around like that. It is biologically designed to do that because that is what keeps them safe in the wild. And we are taking them and saying, but I want all these other muscles to work. And very rarely, because there's no book written, very rarely are we being mindful of that underneck and how it plays into stuff. That's not something that we talk about. This is not common knowledge. There are, you know, there's a handful of like the California Vaquero guys that really, they, they talk about a nice soft underneck or a French classical dressage is another one that talks about having a nice soft underneck. And so there's glimpses of it, but it doesn't, none of them really dive into the why. I think it's because they had really good feel. And so they could feel when the horse softened and came back, they could feel that. And they're like, ah, this is what we're looking for. But really what's happening is that you're taking, you're turning off those protector muscles, which again, is kind of an earned thing, right? Like you have to have a good relationship with your horse in order for them to give you that. And then you're getting access to and developing their thoracic sling so that they no longer have dysfunction. When they don't do that, you get a horse that is conformationally maybe built one way, and then the muscles in the front end of the horse deflate and it goes down, which I'm, I don't think this video is being shown, but I have the pen. Um, but so the front end of the horse goes down. And so the horse looks like it's built downhill, but it's not. And so it's very kind of collapsed in front. And then the neck gets more overdeveloped because at this point, now the horse is only able to really hold its body up with its neck and then with its low back. So it's kind of on this like teeter totter ping pong effect. And unless it gets really truly developed and paid attention to, it just continues on and on and on and on. And it's, it is, it's everywhere. <laughs> so in a thoracic sling dysfunctional horse, what would we notice? Would we notice certain areas like a U-neck? Would we notice them rooting a lot? Would we notice them turning their head a certain way? Maybe tension in through the withers. What are things we should look for to identify horses that have this? Because I know I would always notice the neck muscles, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a chiropractor, but I would completely ignore the saggy boob muscles is what you <laughs> call it, right? So what, what other things should we be looking for in these horses? Posture or from a muscle standpoint, what muscles should we assess to know if a horse may have this? So there are, um, if you go on my Instagram, you can see lots of before and after photos. If your horse looked like the before photo, there's a clue. Um, the, when you look at, so the underneck, so having a really heavy underneck is part of it. U-neck is definitely a thing. Um, the truly U-necked horses are typically a birth trauma thing, in my opinion. Um, they didn't quite unfold all the way. They might've been born with fractured ribs. Something happened where they really couldn't unfold their scapulas. And so from the time that they were a baby, they came out really using their neck, which is why a lot of people think that that's a, um, like a confirmation thing, but it, it's not though, because they have no clavicle. So we can develop the front end of the horse. However, we really see fit. It just takes a little bit longer in those cases. Um, but so you'll see a heavy under neck, you, you neck like, or you neck. You'll see horses that if you look at their shoulders, you would think that they're quite broad, but they stand really narrow together. That's a really big one, right? So their, their pectoral muscles and their subscapular muscles are much, they're, they're deflated. They're not there. And so 
it causes the horse to stand very narrow, which again, puts a lot of strain on their lower limb. So tendons and ligaments and all of those where it should be like, you know, again, you can't see me, but if it should be, you know, a foot apart, but it's only six inches apart, like that's an issue. That's a lot of excess loading that's coming down on those limbs and joints as well. Um, if you're looking on the shoulder itself being, you know, seeing like the lines that are on the shoulder, like that's a big, that shouldn't be there, which again, they're on my briar horse model. So it was a little bit of a thing. Um, elbows being rotated in really heavily. Like, so when you see a horse and their elbows are just really rotated in, because again, there's really no deep pectorals or subscaps there. That's a pretty chronic one. Um, and that one's really bad on their DDFT because that ties in there. Right. And then it has to rotate instead of being held straight in integrity. Um, horses that have a dip in the top of their neck or just really like kind of stringy on the top, like a lack of trapezius is one that you can see oftentimes. Um, those are the main ones. There's, you know, behaviorally, these horses are really, they're either really heavy on the forehand and, or they're, they have a tendency to overcurl because the muscles in the thoracic sling are actually the muscles of a half halt. And so when they don't have that, they don't have the muscles of their center of gravity, they then have to either get really heavy on the forehand and dump down, or their default is to curl and go behind the vertical. Those are two very common things that you'll see. Um, or they'll want to invert really badly, right? They're trying to hold their, hold their body with their neck. Um, yeah. What are particular things? So if someone were to call us out for a chiropractic appointment for a horse, what are particular behaviors outside the ones you told us posturally that they would um, tend to experience if they had this dysfunction? I know one you talk about a lot in your course that I wasn't aware of that really opened my eyes is inability to stay straight on a circle. Like they will fall in and yeah. you wouldn't believe how many horses I've seen that literally cannot stay square on a circle. And I know you call it leads. And I, I would love for you to talk to us a little bit more about the lead of being on a circle and how that applies and what other things a rider might notice of their horse if they were to call us out for an appointment. Um, so oftentimes what comes up is um, head shaking syndrome is one. So horses that are head shaky. So this is kind of getting into more of the thoracic sling dysfunction in my opinion, go hand in hand with nerve impingement. But typically, like, again, like for you coming out, I would say it would be more of like a nerve impingement thing. Um, so head shaking syndrome, being very sensitive to the touch, being very bitey and reactive in their shoulders. Some of them get so bad that when you go to like pet their neck or their shoulders, they get really reactive. Um, having a really hard time lifting their legs for a farrier is a very common one. Because again, when they go to bring that shoulder up, they're going to pinch into that brachial plexus. And so that gets really reactive. Um, having a hard time with leads in general, like a canter lead, like they just, it gets, gets, gets really stuck or, or, or trouble with extension. Um, rearing is one horses that all of a sudden start going up and they're just like, I don't know, so, like something out of nowhere happens and they're just really getting quite vertical. One of those nerve lines, it, it's like, it sends an electric shock up their chest. And so they get really reactive with their front end of their body. Um, being actually just three-legged lame like horses that come up and they are they are lame on their leg and it's coming from their shoulder it's coming from that that brachial plexus impingement um and Cairo is definitely helpful for that again it doesn't regrow the muscles to create space obviously but a lot of times you get misalignment in you know c5 all the way down through t1 is really touchy 
And so if any, it, you know, if they don't, it, it's why like pyro adjustments is so helpful because if the muscles aren't developed adequately, which in most cases here, they're not, if one of those joint alignments goes out just a little bit because it doesn't have, it doesn't have a room for error. Right. And so it's really important to, it's really important to have good chiro. Um, in terms of like under saddle with the leads thing. So a very common sign, I always have horses. I'll have you like when people are getting sessions with me, I'll have them send me pictures or videos of your horse going around on a circle on, on their own. You do it under saddle and or on a lunge. And I just watch. And one of the, the big clue wins is if your horse tightrope walks. So if they're going around a bend and their outside foot crosses over in front of their inside foot, they're not, they're not developed to be riding horse. <laughs> Sorry guys. Um, they're, they're lacking something core in that thoracic sling. And the step higher than that, that's more chronic is when they tight rope on the straight, which is also something that we see quite often. Um, that's, that's real bad. So when that starts happening, those muscles that serve as a cushion between the scapula and C6, C7 and or the brachial plexus are, are going away. And so that makes it really, it's, it's incredibly damaging on the body. Um, and when I say leads, when a horse is going around the bend, again, in the wild, they would have no reason to develop this because horses don't circle in the wild. This is our, this is our invention. Circles were developed to develop a horse. Circles were not developed to practice on. And somewhere along the way, we've lost this. But when you're developing a body on a circle, what you're looking for is that, you know, their, their neck is turned off. You, you have that access to their body. They have a good center of gravity and they're able to hold their body upright around a corner, which means if anybody's ever walked a circle or ridden a quad, in order to go around a bend, your outside leg needs to be working at about like meh, 15, 25% abduction. It needs to be working a little bit harder because it's traveling a longer distance. This is just centrifugal force, physics, whatever you want to call it. But when it's going around the bend, that outside needs to be going more. The problem is, is in a horse, when they do that, they have to be in the correct center of gravity to do that. Otherwise they're falling out through the shoulder. And I think so many people are afraid of their horses falling out through their shoulder and they don't understand correct half fault and how to get that development back here. That when the horse goes to use their shoulder, they fall out and they freak out and they say, we're just never going to touch that. But you must, because that's what, that's how their horse is structurally designed to go through space. So what should be is the outside four should be at a walk and a trot. The outside four should be traveling up and out to the outside to support the shoulders, which then creates spinal integrity because it stands the sternum from being like the sternum to the withers from being like at a slight angle to actually being upright. So when we talk about straightness training, we're actually talking about the thorax of the horse, like being upright. Right. And then that also gives the ability because we're always talking in diagonal pairs of the outside hind can truly have space to come up and out and the inside hind has room to come in. Right. And that's our push. That's our push lead. So both walk, trot and canter, we want the horse to be having correct spinal integrity and development of that inside hind's ability to push off, but that's required for the outside shoulder to have mobility. And again, those muscles. And I, you know, I, it's like all of this that I'm teaching is new information and in that I have been able to break it down. But the more I learn about this and the more people send me articles and like things that the old masters have read. And I wasn't a classical dressage person. So I'm very, I'm not, I'm not well read on this stuff. But when I read 
what they what they wrote and i and i read through dressage chest and i read these things i'm like they had to have known about this they had to have because the way that it's developed is correct and what they were looking for was exactly what i'm teaching it's just it wasn't broken down like these little like the minutia of it and um somebody who's really into the classical literature she she laughs she goes i feel like they never wrote these basic things down because they just assumed that they didn't have to because to them it was so basic and in that era it was so basic but because all we have now are books and photos we've lost you know like the foundation of she's like your balance or movement method is really just a prereq for like all all the things um and so it's really cool to see that but yeah there there is there are many different opinions on different training styles and different ways to do different things. And, and all of that's valid and we're all entitled to our own opinion. But when you're looking at bodies and you're looking at physics, there really only is one correct way for a body to do a particular movement. Um, and it might look, you know, it arguably it looks a little bit different body to body, depending on like the pathology that the body might have. But, you know, you see, football players and ballerinas and people that are like excelling at something that they're doing, they all look the same. They're all developing in the same way for that particular job. Right. And so it should be no different than the horses because horses aren't meant to be ridden and we are developing them for this job to be an athlete. They need, they need to be developed that way, you know, and, and does, does the horse that's just going down the trail need this? Totally. Do they need it as much as the Grand Prix dressage horse? No, absolutely not. But, you know, again, it all, it depends on what you're trying to do and how hard you want to do this. So do you want to develop a horse just so that it's really light and sound and has overall great? Awesome. We got that. Do you want to develop all the way through the Grand Prix levels with a sound horse that's not completely trash and full of compensatory issues? Absolutely. Got that. It's the same system. It's just what goes down a little deeper. <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? You know, that that's probably my question because we run into these sport horses nowadays and any horse client I take on, I, I tell every owner this, we're peeling away the layers of the onion. I don't know what started first, right? So we're seeing all these painful areas and we don't know what first started. What was the initial chicken or the egg here? We don't know what the primary issue is. And many times it takes several appointments to get to that primary, mm -hmm. as we call it, not the secondary problem. Yeah. Um, and then once we finally can address that, then we can actually help with healing. Right. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. it's not only um, a skeletal issue. Like I'm not debating. Of course, you're preaching to the choir that an adjustment can help. It definitely can open up space, but maybe some of these things are myofascial. Maybe they're equipment indu induced. Like, where do you think um, thoracic sling dysfunction started? Like, I know that horses, in your opinion, aren't supposed to be ridden. So is it just sport horses in general? Like that was what led to thoracic sling dysfunction being so common? Or is it bad equipment? Yeah. Or is it rider error? Like, what is the reason that we're seeing this so much? So I think that we saw it less, not that like it wasn't prevalent all the time, you know, since the dawn of time, but I think we saw it a lot less. And this is again, kind of where I'm coming from, like from the, from the bridal horse standpoint, the people that I was raised around with that and, and the, the, the people that I have that are still friends that are in that community, the way that the horses are developed correctly were done so not just as an art form as it is now, like now it's just kind of preserved like that, but they were, it was done so specifically because that one horse is the only thing that put food on the table. 
And that one horse was, you know, he had to work the cattle and he had to take the kids to school and he had to pack back groceries and he had to plow the field and he had to help break the other horses. And like back in the day, horses were utility. And so we cared very, very, very deeply about their well-being. And there were those among the people that really understood that and really understood how to do the soundness, just like the old classical dressage masters understood that we're, they were kind of creating like what we know as dressage now they understood how to develop these horses for war, right? So horses used to be about utility. And I think I think my, my client that made that comment about the basics being missed out, I don't think she's wrong. I think that there were some things that to them were so, of course, you wouldn't just start a horse on circles. Of course, you would take the time to do the in-hand work and you would teach them these things and you would develop them before you got on them. And then once you got on them, they were already developed to start the circles. And then you, you, you know, you use the circle as a training tool. Like that's, that's how it was in every old classical book you can find on both the Vaccaro tradition and on the classical dressage. That is what you did. And so we don't, you know, I, I, I think she's right. I think the basics weren't ever written down. And I think as it's gone through, people saw and we do this all the time, right? Like it's, it's not even just in horses, like it's celebrities. This is a thing. It's like, oh, well, this person did this. So I'm going to do this. Okay. Well, that person did the $20,000 route. You did the $20 route. You wonder why it didn't look the same. You know, like you can't look at something or watch somebody write or read a book, you know, and these, and these guys are all, are all gone. You know, there are people that are like the wisdom keepers that have kind of kept a little bits here and there, but they're really picky about who they talk to because People don't listen. Human nature is they want a quick fix. They want, and now horses, the majority of these horses, it's a, it's a commodity and it's an elitist sport. It's not a utility to a lot of these people. I'm not discounting that they care deeply about their horses. They do, but, and they're sad when the horses go unsound, but the horse's soundness is not at the forefront. And, and the people, I mean, and I'm, and I'm friends with a lot of my clients and I watch them struggle and I just kind of have to sit back and listen, but they're like, oh, but I really wanted to go to this show. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I know you want to go to the show. I know you want that pretty ribbon. I know you think it's a fun experience, but like, I, I don't know. Like you can't, and that, that is so far from the utility mindset that the maintenance of the horse and the making sure that the horse never gets to that point of breakage, you wouldn't pay your bills. You wouldn't be able to put food on the table. Like you were screwed when that happened. And now it's like, well, I don't get my pretty ribbon. And that's a big, big mindset difference. So that's where I think a lot of it has gone wrong. Um, you know, and again, now it's kind of flipping a 180 as is, you know, we're, and we see this again, you know, in all areas of the world, we see it with feminism, we see it with all kinds of things where it's like it was here and then it was there and now it's back here again. And what we're, what we're seeing now is there are, I mean, body work for horses have only been around since like 1993, like you know, Linda Tellington Jones was like the big, like massage, you know, body work and everybody thought she was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs when she started this shit. Right. And she's like, I'm like, I've never met her, but like, I just, you know, she's like a huge idol to me if for no other reason other than she was a woman and she brought body work to the forefront. Right. Like how cool is that? And so if you think about it in the context of how long body work's been around, it's not that long. The same for Cairo, right? And so we have that. And then now we're understanding biomechanics and now saddle fittings becoming an art. And now we have new technology over feet. And like the technology that we have had now <clears throat> to understand, to maybe start piecing together what the masters were trying to say, like they didn't have this stuff then. They just had their feel. 
mm-hmm. and they had their own ability. And now we're able to start seeing it and maybe pairing it with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's why we're seeing an influx in awareness, which is really cool. But that awareness now has to battle the <laughs> millennia of, of lack thereof. So I feel like animal medicine is 30 years behind human medicine and we see oh my god (laughs) maybe more than 30 years because um animal chiropractic was first developed I believe the techniques by Sharon Willoughby in the 70s so she was a veterinarian and then she um, went to actually chiropractic school and she developed her techniques but through extrapolation of the human chiropractic so similar you know to how you developed your balance or movement method and so when you consider horses that's all we got (laughs) I know we consider we just started using these bodywork techniques since the 70s, the 90s. Well, then, yeah, we definitely are behind. And we're seeing a lot of new research coming out um, for humans. That is really, really promising now. And I really hope that we start to see um, this start to go towards, you know, the sport horse and, you know, small animal uh, medicine for sure, too, because it's so underutilized. And definitely there's a difference between having a pet in your home being a, you know, part of the family. And, you know, back in the day when you relied upon that animal to now where it's more of a, I want to say a pleasure, you know, you keep that animal for a certain goal to be achieved for your pleasure, right? There's a different sense of how you take care of that animal. And I definitely, I definitely feel a divide when I treat a small animal versus a large animal, Um, different senses in the owner's um, commitment level for sure, because I'll just buy a new one is definitely um, something that comes up. Um, But perhaps pivoting a little bit, um, you know, there are these foundational issues where we miss the basics with our sport horse, but I want to maybe pivot back to when you were briefly touching upon birth trauma, because that's Mm -hmm. not something we think of with animals, but we see it in humans all the time. Like there's chiropractors that are only for pediatric, right? They only see babies and Mm -hmm. birth trauma is definitely a huge component of what they treat. So can you talk to us a little bit more about thoracic sling dysfunction and how it could start from day one in a horse as well? Yeah. Um, so I mean, arguably I would say that I'm not the person to interview on this because this is not something that I specialize in, but I I've touched on it enough to at least be able to speak to you because I think that it's really important to talk about or at least to just be aware of. Um, So on top of the biological nature of the horse, there was a study done. um, I posted it in the group a long time ago. I'll have to go back and find it. But there was a study done that I came across in the vet and a a veterinarian journal. And this study, and again, this was like back in the 90s, like this was a while ago, I think. And the study had said that based off of imaging that one in five foals were born with fractured ribs. And I'd gone down that, that kind of slope because I worked on so many horses and I, I had a suspicion between putting hands on horses and then playing with the development stuff with high, low. So I can, I've watched that and they're like, Oh, and they would be like, but well, they've stood like this for years. They've stood like this since they were a baby. And I'm like, I wonder if it started as a baby. Like, I wonder if there was full trauma. And I used to, I worked at a breeding farm. So I, I assisted in a lot of births. And I remember how traumatic it was watching them and their poor little shoulders have to like clamp down. And like, that's a lot of real estate that has come through a very tiny little canal and watching them unfold. And they were always so just gawky coming out. And um, so I took a year and I got my hands on as many babies as possible. And I was like, free body work. I won't charge anything. I just really want to come touch babies. 
And so I worked on a ton of babies a couple of years ago. And what I found was one shoulder was always substantially tighter than the other. Not always, most of the time though. And I was like, that's really cool. And so, and I, I wasn't thinking about it as like a study. Like I should have been like, out of 75 horses too. Like I should have been a grown up, but I wasn't, but I, I can tell you that a lot, most of them had a, a sticky shoulder. So then I came across that, that study and he said the fractured ribs. And I was like, oh, I missed it. It was the ribs. It wasn't the shoulder, but I've had fractured ribs. And so when you get fractured ribs and it's always the upper ones, when you get fractured ribs, you almost always get frozen shoulder. Like it's kind of, you can't not because you're, you're trying to like hold everything in. And I was like, I bet that's what happened with the horses. I bet the ones that had the really sticky shoulders actually had fractured ribs and they were just holding it. And what was really rad about his study was that not only was one in five foals born with birth trauma, but by day three, all physical signs of them were uh, of it was gone. So they weren't flinchy. They didn't look different. Like everything was fine. So by day three, you had no idea that that had happened. So unless you like knew, and I'm like, again, this was a long time ago. Like, why are we talking about this? I talk to breeding farms all the time and they've never heard of this. And I'm like, this is wild. So if from the time they were born, they already had. So even when fractured ribs heal, that's still a lot of myofascial issues, right? Frozen shoulder, sticky shoulder. That's a lot of myofascial issues, how they're going to load, how their entire spine might sit is going to be completely different based off of that rotation. And so, you know, by the time these horses, again, not even talking about how they're biologically designed, by the time these horses get under saddle, you could have a whole slew of issues just sitting there, you know, and it's, it's, it's wild. So I do think that it's something that everybody should at least be aware of it and hunt down it. But that has a lot, that has a lot to do with it. Ill-fitting tack, of course, has a huge amount to do with it. Feet, my God, at least 60% of the people that I work with, I'm like, you need to have, an, you need a different farrier or your farrier needs to work with my farrier or somebody else. They're willing, they, you need to have a farrier that's willing to take some tips here because this is like this epidemic of NPAs like uh, alone is terrible and it's not uh, you know three of the main nerves that run down that lumbosacral plexus as well as the brachial plexus so both fronts and hinds run down and innervate into the hoof and come back up so they could do all of my work and my work would be one hell of a band-aid and it wouldn't actually do anything if it wasn't getting a correct feedback loop from the nerves in the hoof so it's like it is all so important Everything's connected. It's so interesting. If you don't address the teeth, if you don't address the saddle fit, if you don't address the body work, if you don't do the Cairo, if you don't do the vet, if you don't have a team of individuals for your horse, mm -hmm. it's not going to be able to uh, have a quality career. You know, yeah. it really is an investment where you need a team of specialists working together on your little race car is what I yeah. like to say. Right. You know, you got, a guy for tires, you got a guy for under the hood. Right. So um, tell me a little bit more about your role and how the balance through movement method, what, what is it per se? Because I know for <laughs> chiropractors, we're like, what, okay, oh, what it sounds is great, it? right? But what is it? Is it physical therapy? Is it massage? Is it like active release? It's, it's, it's none of the above. It's just, well, I mean, I guess one could argue that it's similar to physical therapy. So the balance through movement method is a, essentially, it's just a way of training. So it's a way of training your horse through correct movement. So some people go out and they lunge their horses for 15, 20 minutes a day. I do in hand work with my horses, 15 to 20 minutes a day. And it's very, 
specific. So like the first thing, so it's based off of three pillars. So the first pillar is their relationship to connection because that translates into how you access their body. Um, so we talk about a lot of horsemanship comes into this because again, your horse needs to feel safe to turn off those protector muscles. And it's a whole, it's a whole thing. But so pillar one is all about mapping out your horse's body and learning how to turn off some muscles to turn on other muscles, because that's, that's what I've learned to be the most effective. It's not like us where I can be like, okay, raise your left hand here. And then like, I can't, we can't do that to horse, but there are certain postures that we can get the horse to have that we can then play off of those antagonistic sets. Pillar two is about actual development of the thoracic sling itself. Um, well, the other thing with pillar one that you get <laughs> backtrack is you're also getting to release chronic tension to kind of rewire with that too. So the whole methodology of it is, you know, you can use it just as much diagnostically as developmentally, but it's supposed to unwind the whole horse in the negative compensatory patterns while strengthening the correct ones. Um, that's, that's the goal. And so if some hitch comes up along the way, then you're like, cool, full stop. Let's look into that. Like, is it a foot thing? Is it a balancing? Is it a saddle fit thing? Like it's a really quick, like we've clued in on some really chronic, like we've clued in on like a crushed meniscus. We've clued in on really chronic dental. We've clued in on a broken rib. Like it's really neat to see when you put the horse's body into a posture that it's supposed to be, um, like through, and again, this is just with physics, if an alarm bell comes off or if they can't do that, it's really fun and quick to be like, Oh, psh, this is what's going on. So a lot of vets that I have, like the one in Germany, I was talking about this morning is rad because she, she's using this as a diagnostic tool, which is really cool. So she puts the horses through like the, my, like my, my version of range of motion. And she was like, Oh God, I find stuff so much quicker now. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I want. Yeah. Um, but so pillar two then is about developing the sling itself so that you're developing the muscles of the center of gravity so that when we go into actual movement, so pillar three then is about developing all four cardinal range of motion. So the horse should have full range of motion in all four limbs independently, meaning the difference of like an independent abduction, can they move their right leg out or do they need to use their left hind or their left fore to move the right leg out, which kind of goes back to that tight roping conversation. So you get like a full body range of motion and development and then when we put it into writing and we're working with them, this just then turns into a checklist. So there are exercises that turn into a checklist to make sure that when you're riding your horse, you're like, okay, cool. Like, are they balanced? Are they soft? Are they using the right muscles? Is their spine and integrity? Awesome. And you can take that. I mean, we've got 1D barrel racers that killed it last weekend. We've got big jumpers. We've got mounted shooters. We have Vaquero. We have classical dressage. Like, because it's, it's all the same body. And so if you can develop a body to be ridden correctly and for soundness, then it, it all goes, it all goes hand in hand. So it's, it's incredibly complex and incredibly simple. <laughs> As with anything in treating the body, right? Yeah. It's really simple until you start to dissect the little pieces. Now this sounds great for a performance horse, but what about horses that are severely neurological? Because this is a nerve issue. Will this mm -hmm. work for a horse maybe with like EPM or something like that? Uh-huh. This is my favorite for EPM actually. Um, and I are, I don't argue, but I say oftentimes that this was developed for EPM because my, like when I was in the middle of my mental breakdown, I was also, my heart horse was diagnosed with EPM and this was like 10 years ago. Um, and so 
back then it was still kind of a death sentence. It wasn't as like, now it's like not so scary. Like back then my vet was like, he like sat me down and handed me a beer and was like, this is going to be bad. <laughs> I was at a full, it was horrible. I remember that day viscerally. Um, and he was like, we can try marquee, but like, you know, I just, I need to prepare you. And it was so horrible. And I wouldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with the idea of him, of him not being here. And so I started playing around with anything that I could possibly do. And so he is basically the sum of all of my mistakes as I got to the finished product that is bounce removement method now. But what we learned with him was, was all of this. And so like pillar three, spinal integrity specifically came, he taught me that one because what we learned was with the EPM horses, how do I say this in a very broken down way? So when EPM gets to the point that it's neurologic, what happens is the horse kind of loses that motor control over the hind end, right? So they get really, like being very fishtaily is a very common one, right? They get very narrow through there. And what I found is that it's not so much, and I, and I don't know what it is that does this, so like people can take it or leave it, but this is just how I rehab it. What I have found is whatever that, whatever the protozoa does, to the central nervous system, it affects the lumbosacral plexus. And so what I do to fix that, and I fix it in neuro and horses that are diagnosed neuro all the time that don't have EPM, but they don't know what's wrong. They're like the horse is neuro and they'll fail a neuro exam. Like I'm not arguing that they're neuro, but it comes from a disconnect in that lumbosacral plexus. So what mm-hmm. I do is I, I develop the shoulders independently. So like one of the exercises is having them do correct independent abduction. And again, there's like a very correct posture they have to take for this but they have to do it with their shoulders, with their hind end not moving so that they learn to reintegrate and just talk to the front end of their body instead of it being so swishy, swishy behind. And then when that gets really good and they get the strength and the mobility in the front end and they can really talk to the front end, then I start doing spinal movements essentially with their body. So we'll do walk work, um, really accessing the shoulders and making sure that we're getting good traction. So we're redeveloping those spinal muscles And there's something about when you really strengthen the spinal muscles around, so you're decreasing the load in the psoas, but you're really strengthening those spinal muscles to stabilize that lumbosacral plexus so it stops getting jackknifed over, the neurologic symptoms go away. Um, It's the same way that I've treated string halts, the same way that I've treated shivers. Like there's something about that, that but it comes from it being jackknifed and it's a different impingement than the brachial plexus gets under the scapula, but it's the same idea. And so when I fix that, even in the chronic EPM horses, their symptoms go away. Like it's, it's pretty cool. So like sciatica in people, would you say hmm? like sciatica in people? Yeah. Yeah. And say, and horses get sciatic all the time too. They'll get a lameness. They'll get an undiagnosed lameness of a hind end and it comes from that lumbosacral plexus or the really common one is the horses will be going along. This is very, very common in dressage horses. They'll be going along, they'll be going around a corner, everything's fine. And then out of absolutely nowhere, they have a catastrophic meltdown. They just absolutely lose their marbles and they blow and they rear and they buck and they spin. And it's a whole, whole gambit of things. And every single one of those horses had a lumbosacral plexus thing that was firing that sciatica. And it was like, they'd be fine, all was well. And then boom, and it would hit. And we're like, well, and we fixed that. The, we, we fixed it all the same way. So very interesting. This is very interesting stuff. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to be like, uh, mind blown, right? Like I was when yeah. I took your course, I was like, oh, this is, 
this marries so well to what we know about human chiropractic and now how it's relating to horses impingements do exist and there are functional movements you can do to enable their biomechanics to work better with the job that they have at hand so as a chiropractor what are what are specific areas that i can um you know work on these horses to enable them to have better thoracic sling dysfunction are there specific areas i need to address as a chiropractor to enable this horse to rehab oh man i mean i would say i would say the whole body like the the way that you know when you're working with like cranial and atlas stuff that's going to affect the pelvis which affects that lumbosacral plexus um so those things are really important um Checking in with the stifle, um, most stifle issues are iliopsoas tension. And so there's a couple things um, that I could show you. There's a, I, I, would like to, I'll, I would like to play with you later, <laughs> but I would like to show you a couple of things because you can check in what stifle and what psoas. But even when there's a psoas issue, there's some certain things that I've seen, like my chiropractor will adjust the stifle and that will really help the psoas to let go because there is a connection there. Um, Again, like we mentioned, so anything in the cervical spine, but really predominantly C5 through T1 is the most common ones that I see that can cause a lot of that chronic pain. Sternum rotation is another one. Um, that's a big one that I'll see horses be absolutely three-legged over a, a, a sternum rotation. Um, yeah. The whole thing, everything you do. <laughs> Find what you feel and fix it is what I tell yes. everybody. Cause everyone asks me all the time, like, what, what should I adjust? And I'm like, well, did you feel it? <laughs> it depends on the body. I don't depends, know. <laughs> depends on the body you have under your hands. Right. Yes. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to learn more, so say for example, they want to have help like with this, they want to learn more about it, or they want to find mm-hmm. someone who's certified in your balancer movement method. Where can they mm-hmm. learn more about you and your work? There is, my website is balancedermovementmethod.com. Hop on that. There's access to the masterclass that you're in. That's a really, it's a very simple, it's not professionally done. It's a bunch of videos like this where I'm just giving lots of lecture. There's um, example videos. There's lots of, lots and lots of content in there. Um, It's a private Facebook group. It's 150 bucks. It's like nothing for you to just get in there. And and it's cool because it's self-study. Um, but there are examples of some of the core, the fundamental exercises that I'll have everybody start with is really like, that's all in there. So a lot of people can at least get started. If you feel like you really need a one-on-one, um, on the website as well, there's an option for distant sessions. My calendar is probably going to be closed through the winter because I am, I really need to finish some projects and I keep, (laughs) I really love helping people. So I get suckered into like doing more and I'm like, I need to stop doing this. Um, but I have a list of phenomenal trainers that are all well adept in this stuff that you guys can can get in with. Um, and that list will, will continue to grow too. So I'm trying to grow like a community of people along with that. But that's, yeah, it's 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 cool. So that's, that's where you can find it. Um, Instagram for if you want to see before and afters. I am not in any way, shape or form active in my messages. I don't think I've, I think I've checked my Instagram messages maybe three times the whole time I've had Instagram. So it's just there for really for people to see like just a straight up shot of like port before and after photos, I guess. Um, yeah. Or follow me on Facebook, whatever. Awesome. Works. It takes a village. And I'm so happy that you're spreading the awareness of this because it's not something everyone would know to check for. Like, again, you mm-hmm. said on briar horses, you see it on off the track thoroughbreds. You see it. A lot of your barrel. So bad on off the track thoroughbreds. You see them all over. I used to ride a lot of off the track thoroughbreds. You see it everywhere. And it looks 
normal until it's not anymore once you have the awareness so when you know better you do better and that's the whole one thing um I just wanted to like kind of like throw the snippet out there too and this is I know this will will mean something to you as a Cairo but one thing that I really try to like drive home for people is to the body's ability to heal when it is set up correctly is really outstanding um and especially you know those of us humans that have dealt with like I have some really crippling nerve pain issues that would should put me in a wheelchair sometimes um as well as autoimmune and there are horses that are the same way and if our bodies are set up well they function more than like what it would show on an image right like if we were just living what our diagnosis are like we wouldn't a lot of us wouldn't be here (laughs) I think and it's the same for horses and I say that to say you know, you have horses that come in with chronic kissing spines injuries and ECVM even is really, it's getting to be a really big hot thing where everybody's talking about it. And I have four, four client horses that have ECVM diagnosed and they're actually seeing an alleviation and things. That's not to say that all of them are right. Some of them should be put down and some kissing spines horses are bad. And there are, there will always be cases that are chronic and should be treated as such. I'm not saying that, but I think that if the horse is physically able to start doing some exercises and physically able to have chiropractic and physically able to get their feet shifted. And if there are things that they are able to tolerate while we help set their bodies up, it's pretty insane. The amount of healing that you will get in horses that people have written off. Um, I had a horse this morning where the the first thing out of her mouth, because it was like our follow-up and she was just like, yeah, I totally should have put him down, huh? Where every, everybody told her to put this horse down. He's fine. And so we can save a lot of lives um, by just trying to set them up, you know, and it takes like my shit's like 15 minutes a day. It's not a lot. Like I don't, you don't need equipment. You don't need a whole bunch of fancy things. Like you just need to go out and spend 15 minutes a day messing with your horse a little bit. It's really not a lot. So if you get some, you know, life altering diagnosis and your intuition kicks off and you're like, I really wonder if take a chance, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much. And we know better, we do better. And it's really helpful to know that there's, there's other opinions out there other than you should just euthanize because I can't tell you how many pets start with me. And that's what the owner says on the phone. Should I just put my, my dog or my horse down? Like, should I just, yeah. up? and chiropractic's a last result sometimes for them. Yeah. Right? Maybe the balancer movement method is a last result for them. And just giving mm-hmm. someone hope through natural and holistic means is super powerful. So mm-hmm. um, through awareness, we're hoping to change our animals for the better, hoping to change our mm-hmm. humans for the better, hopefully as well. And um, I'm super thankful for you for your course and uh, making this, this known because it, it's not something they really teach in vet school in chiropractic school even and it needs to be talked about so i'm really thankful for having you and for taking your course and for potentially the listeners who will now have an awareness about it as yeah well. so thank you so much for that um guys awesome. thank you so much for listening if you want more information about me and uh, my um, services to help you grow your animal chiropractic business i'm on making strides for animalchiropractic.com. can't wait to serve you and the patients that you will serve in the future until then we'll talk soon 
Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I hope these free tools have served you and your business so you can serve more patients. It's really tough being an animal chiropractor. I know it. You're trying to meet all these people, trying to get their vet to sign these referral forms, and you don't know if you can make your business work financially. It's hard. I get it. Now, when I first got started, all of my chiropractic mentors told me you have to do all these marketing events, meet all these people you don't know, shake a lot of hands, and get them into your practice. I was always wondering where my next new patient was going to come from. And if I'm being honest with you all, it wasn't sustainable. It always put fear in my head that I would never have a practice of my dreams. So fast forward a couple years, and here I am with a successful and thriving animal chiropractic practice. And it took a lot of mindset shifts in order to get here. What I thought and what I was told would work didn't work for me. So I had to develop a program that worked for a strongly introverted, kind of awkward person who just loves animals and wants to serve them well. I had to shift away from always thinking about where I'm going to get my new patients in to instead focusing on the relationships I built in my community and becoming an authority figure on animal chiropractic. So you guys, I have a free course that's going to tell you a little bit more about how I made these mindset shifts and why I started this Making Strides movement. So that way we can push the animal chiropractic profession forward. Please join us on makingstridesforanimalchiropractic.com. Take the free course and see what it has to offer you. Hey guys, Dr. Katie here. Thanks for listening. My intention behind starting this podcast was to build awareness and promote our amazing profession. If you like what we're doing here, please like, share, or leave a review. Help us to spread this movement so we all can begin to take steps towards change. Let's make strides for animal chiropractic.